good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. We do indeed, O God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us and passing it down to us through the ages that we might have it even this morning. We've heard it read in a language we understand, but we ask now, O God, that you would grant to us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Would you teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake? Oh God, increase our faith. Give us certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And Lord, help us by your spirit that we might honor you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. William Mitchell Ramsey, or I should say Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, was one of the most notorious British historians of the early 20th century. He was also a devout atheist who had given himself to the prevailing school of thought of his day. The school of thought was this belief, it's called the Tübingen School, uh, the belief that the New Testament was not a firsthand account of actual eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Rather, the New Testament was mostly a, a late second century adaptation that was written to strengthen the position of the rapidly growing Christian movement. He loved studying this and talking about it. And he loved to try to prove the New Testament wrong. So to affirm his convictions, he decided to set out on a trip. And the purpose of this trip was to debunk some of the explicit truth claims of the gospels, the book of Acts and Paul's letters. And as part of his trip, he followed the, what he called the alleged footsteps of the apostle Paul through his missionary journeys. He go, went to all those places in Asia Minor that were now being excavated by archeologists and new discoveries were happening. And he went there saying, I'm gonna find these things and disprove the New Testament. You could say that Ramsey was a man on a mission, a mission to disprove biblical history. But a funny thing happened on his trip. I mean, I guess technically it's providential, but we can call it a funny thing. You see, everywhere he went, he found that more and more of this archeological evidence was serving not to disprove some historical aspect of the New Testament, but rather the evidence was substantiating the New Testament. It was proving the New Testament. What did this do to him? What well, shook his atheism. It shook his skepticism to the core. And the course of his life was redirected. It was redirected to the cross, to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. On that trip, he was born again. Because of that trip, William Ramsey is well-known, well-known now, Sir William Ramsey, not as an atheist or a skeptic, but he's known as a great New Testament scholar and a brother in Christ. 
You know, it's all too common to hear someone say, when you become a Christian, you can check your mind at the door. No room for that. When you become a Christian, just leave your mind at the door. But that is the farthest thing from the truth. Listen, Christianity is indeed a faith that engages your heart. It envelops your emotion. But it is most certainly a faith that engages your intellect as well. Christianity is rooted in history. It's rooted in historical fact. The story of our faith travels a a well-guided and certain path through real time and real events. It is not, as many suggest, just some leap of faith into an abyss where only hopes without reason to reach a place of safety at the bottom. It's more than that. And this becomes absolutely clear for us right here in these first four verses of the gospel according to Luke. That's its official title, the gospel according to Luke. From the very beginning, before even launching into the life and ministry of the one of whom he's writing about, from the very beginning, Luke makes it very clear that the purpose for which he is writing is to provide an accurate and compelling case for the person and work of Jesus Christ and a case for the Christian faith that was spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman world. For Luke, this is serious business. He's like an investigative journalist. We might call him that today. I like what one commentator says, the book that he writes should be called the gospel of knowing for sure. The gospel of knowing for sure. Well, before we launch into this exposition of these verses, I think it would be good to begin. So this is like pseudo point one, okay? It's like the the preface we could say. But let's, let's begin by answering a fundamental question that you have to answer when you come to a book like this. Who is this Luke? Who is this guy? Who is this investigative journalist who's writing this account? You can follow along in some of these passages with me if you would like. In Colossians 4, 10 through 14, the apostle Paul lists out some people who were partners with him in the ministry. He begins in 4.10 of the book of Colossians with uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. And he says of these three, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. If you didn't pick up on the language there, he called them men of the circumcision. Paul's saying, these are my Jewish partners, These are my Jewish partners. Then he goes on in verse 12 and he mentions a man by the name of Epaphras. If you're familiar with the New Testament letters, you'll recognize Epaphras. And he describes him as one of you. He's writing to who? The Colossians. So he's a Colossian. Epaphras is from Colossae. He's a Gentile. And lastly, he mentions Demas and Luke. Demas and Luke. And Luke, he calls the beloved physician. Luke is the beloved physician. So from this, from Colossians 4, 10 through 14, we learn that Luke was A, one of Paul's companions. We learn B, that he's a Gentile. And C, we learn that he's a physician. Interesting for that time period, huh? A physician, well-educated, understands the sciences, we might say. 
Well, Luke is not only the author of this gospel, and maybe you don't know this, but Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts are really one volume in two parts, okay? So it's, it's one thing, Luke and Acts. And so you might wonder, why didn't they put them together in the Bible? Well, that's just for trivia, okay? Just so you could learn. Uh, but they're both written by this man, Luke. Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you can discern an important shift in language in chapter 16. So turn over to Acts 16, and you'll see an important shift in language, which is helpful for us. From Acts 1.1 all the way through chapter 16, verse 15, there are third person pronouns used to discuss all these things that the apostles were doing, the acts of the apostles. But in 1616, there is a shift to the occasional use of first person pronouns. So let's turn there to Acts 16, look at verse six. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And then look at 1616, and we were going to the place of prayer. And from that point on, occasionally you'll see this reference to we. That means Luke is included. This tells us that Luke joined Paul, likely joined Paul during what is known as the second missionary journey. Luke becomes a traveling companion and partner with Paul during the second missionary journey. So that's an important thing to pick up on. Finally, we see that Luke is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4:11. If you don't know about 2 Timothy, uh, these are some of Paul's final words before his death. He's sitting in prison. We should probably call it a cistern that became a prison. He's sitting in this deep cistern well thing and he's writing this letter. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, he makes this comment that you might breeze by. Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. Now, Luke may not himself be an apostle. He's not. He wasn't one of the 12 that followed Jesus. He may not himself be an apostle, but he is indeed a faithful companion to the apostle Paul, a faithful companion there to the very end. Such faithfulness gave the early church confidence Confidence not only in the account that he was writing, but confidence in his character. If you know the letters of Paul, many left Paul. Uh, Paul had to practice discipline with many who were with him. But Luke was there, faithful to the Lord, faithful to serve with Paul to the very end. Luke was a well-known, faithful brother to those in the church. That's who authored this book, Luke. Faithful brother in Christ, companion of the Apostle Paul, well-known throughout Christianity. So now we understand who the author of the book is. Let's take that deeper look at his purpose for writing. What is Luke's purpose for writing this book as he makes clear in these verses? You can find the purpose in verse four. I love this. He spells it out. He tells us exactly what the purpose is that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, period. That's why he's writing. So that you can have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the purpose of the gospel according to Luke is certainty, that we might have certainty. So if you're taking notes this morning, you've hopefully have a preface or 
point, point five, maybe half a point there. Let's get to point one. This is our first point. There's only two or two and a half or three, however you look at it. Biblical certainty. Biblical certainty. The gospel according to Luke was written to give us biblical certainty. Now that might sound odd to you. It might sound odd to say that a book of the Bible was written to give certainty to the Bible as a whole, but that's exactly what Luke is saying in verse one when he writes these words, look there, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, more literally fulfilled among us. You might ask, why does Luke use the word accomplished or fulfilled? Why doesn't he just say, hey, here's what happened? Why didn't he say, uh, here's what went down? Or maybe, now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. Sorry, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, anybody? Just making sure you're paying attention. No, I'm old, I know, I'm old. The young ones are like, what? Look it up, look it up. Will Smith, okay? Yeah, maybe catch it there. Why don't you just say, hey, here's how it went, everybody. But he picks a word, a significant word, I would say a redemptive, historically significant word. Because Luke's not just referring to a series of events. He's not just writing a newspaper article to tell you what happened. He's actually making reference to the events and promises of the Old Testament. Luke is saying, here's a narrative of the things that have fulfilled or accomplished the promises that were once given to us in the Old Testament. We might say it this way, this book is a record of how God kept or fulfilled all those promises. This emphasis on the eternal plan of God and the fulfillment of that plan is central to Luke's gospel. And we're gonna see it the whole time that we're in the gospel according to Luke. In fact, I think it's very clear that as he sits out to, to give certainty to us by showing how Jesus fulfills the promises of God, he's just carrying on what he has already been doing. This is what he's been doing. He's been reading and he's been studying the Old Testament and he's been studying it, how he was taught. And you're thinking, yeah, I'm sure Paul taught him that. Jesus studied it the same way. Turn to the end, turn to Luke 24. 44 through 48. This word fulfilled forms in the Greek language what we call an inclusio. We might say bookends. Then Jesus said to them, Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, okay, that's code for the Old Testament, must be, you see it, fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Fulfillment. This passage forms a bookend, this passage that we just read with one, one through four, emphasizing the same idea that biblical promises are being and have been fulfilled. You probably even noticed uh, that key word, right? Because it's put there to drive home the point 
that Luke's entire gospel is about God's accomplishing his eternal plan through Jesus Christ. And I love how you can see Luke's passion for this on every single page. He has a passion for it. He quotes directly from the Old Testament many times, but he does something that the other writers don't really do, the other gospel writers. He makes countless allusions to the Old Testament as well. Remember, Luke is a Gentile. He, he wasn't steeped in the Jewish scriptures and traditions from childhood. This is all new to him, right? When he came to the faith. And you can tell, as I said before, that he not only had a good teacher in Paul, but he had a great love for Jesus and the story that Jesus had come to fulfill. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, a pastor and commentator, he shares in his commentary a story about a historian whose name was Barbara Tuckman and a conversation that Barbara had with a student in her uh, college history department. This young man, this PhD student was bogged down in his thesis. I mean, he just felt like he was getting nowhere. And his thesis was about an early missionary to the Congo who had not been written about before. So he picked this character because no one's ever written about this character. So I'm gonna write this entire doctoral thesis about it. One day when he reached the end of his rope, he, he confessed to her, I just don't like him. I'm tired of writing this. I just don't like him. I want you to listen to her response and I'll quote it. The chief quality, which is indispensable for writing good history is that you must be in love with your subject. To write good history, you must be in love with your subject. Luke loved Jesus. And you can tell that he loved to tell the story of Jesus. When I wrote those words earlier this week, this hymn came to my mind. It's that old hymn, I love to tell the story. Some of you may know it. I won't sing it for you. I'll quote some of the first verse. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. Let's sing that one, Austin. That's a good one. That's the heart of Luke's writing. He loves to tell the story. It's a biblical story. It gives biblical certainty. But Luke's love for Jesus leads him not only to write for the purpose of biblical certainty, Luke also writes for historical certainty. And this is our second and final point this morning. He writes for historical certainty. Luke has this passion in his writing for accuracy. And not just on his part, but on the part of the many others that he references, right? Who had also sketched accounts, the, the many, you see it there referred to in verse one. He had a concern for exactness to be just like those who, according to verse two, he said had already passed on the story as eyewitnesses of the accounts he was writing about, but also to be like the other apostles who had been writing about Jesus, those whom he calls in verse two, ministers of the word. You see, in the ancient world, and sometimes we forget this, but in the ancient world, it was an honor to be an eyewitness to events. I mean, you've all been it. You, you, you've seen something happen and you're like, well, it'd be easier if I just walked away. <laughs> 
and didn't have to say what really happened or get caught up in all that. Oh, how times have changed. It was an honor in that day to be an eyewitness. You were a living history book. They, they, young ones, this might surprise you, but they didn't have like phones recording everything back then. And they weren't capturing it all on reels to put on some site that I won't name. They weren't doing that. They always saw it and it was important to them to see it and retell it accurately. You were expected to recall events in fullness and truthfulness so they could be passed down to future generations in full authenticity, which a bunch of sinners do perfectly, don't they? Yeah. So that's this passion, right? We gotta make sure it's right. Let's cross check, let's cross reference. Let's, let's see if that's really true. You make a claim like that, let's find out. It's uncanny. Luke stands out in that sense. And look what he says in verse three. It's gonna have some painstaking and thorough research is essentially what he's saying. As he seeks to write his orderly account, that's what that means. His orderly account. You can only imagine him, right? He's hanging out with Paul in Jerusalem and he's like, who can I talk to? And of course, tradition is passed down to us. We don't know if it's true or not that he interviewed Mary, which is why he has some details that others don't include. Uh, it's clear to say he was interviewing everyone he could because he tells us that. Perhaps in Caesarea, he was doing the same. He gives some details there that other writers don't. I can just picture him interviewing any number of original eyewitnesses, confirming and cross-checking the testimonies. We might say today he pursued every lead possible, right? Luke writes as one who leaves no stone unturned. In his commentary on Luke, I'm not gonna say his name right, Tabidi An Yabwile shares about his experience as a practicing Muslim. And in particular, he shares about Islam's problems with history. He recounts this, he says, Muslims are convinced that Islam is the final religion and the culmination of all religions and that Muhammad is the final prophet and the greatest of all prophets. He continues, but do you know what there is little of in Islam? He says, there's little external historical evidence for its religious claims. For example, he says, every Muslim believes in Muhammad being miraculously transported to Jerusalem and from there into heaven. That's why Muslims claim the dome of the rock and the temple grounds in Jerusalem as a holy site. Yet, he says, there is no historical evidence whatsoever that Muhammad even ever went to Jerusalem, none. So he concludes, it's the stuff of dreams. It's not the stuff of history. In Christianity, we're receiving history fulfilled in view of all. It's held up to be scrutinized. As I mentioned in the opening on his trip, Sir William Ramsey learned firsthand that what we claim as Christians were not things done in secret or just revealed to a secret few. They were things done in space and time and they left a historical footprint for everyone to see. And throughout Luke's gospel, you can see this historical footprint in ways that is not common to other New Testament books. I'm just gonna give you a few examples right from the very beginning. Look at chapter one, verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. 
That's immense detail. And he gives that detail. Two, one through two, another example. Got to turn a lot of pages here because chapter one is long. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. But look what he adds. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And then turn over to chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. That's a lot of detail. And it's detail that people used to mock and laugh about until... In the last hundred years or so, most of it's been proven to be exactly right. Exactly right in that time frame. I could go on and on and we'll see those as we go through the gospel according to Luke. These passages give us specific names of actual people and places. They give us references to time. Luke puts them there so that we can look outside the Bible to test what's inside the Bible. And as these things have been put to the test, as I said, They've been proven true over and over again. Through Luke's gospel, we can indeed have certainty that all these things written about the life and ministry of Jesus are most certainly historically true. Luke is writing this gospel account, as I've said, with both biblical and historical certainty in mind. But we need to mention one other thing as we begin to land the plane here. Luke doesn't do this in his own power. We know that Luke was carried along by the Holy Spirit. We know that Luke was writing what is for us now God's holy inspired and an errant word. Luke was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we should find comfort in the fact that Luke's passion for Jesus, Luke's passion for the story of Jesus, Luke's passion for us to have biblical and historical certainty is not just his own passion, but it's God's passion. God wants us to have biblical and historical certainty of the faith as well. We don't just check our minds at the door. God wants us to understand this. The question for you and for me is, do we have that passion? Do we share this same passion? Do we have a passion for Jesus? Do we have a passion for Jesus' story? Do we have a passion for certainty? Do we have a passion for that? You may be wondering, and so maybe this will put your wondering to rest. Look at verse three. Notice that the opening is addressed to a person, the most excellent lover of God. That's what Theophilus means, lover of God. I find it ironic that we still don't know who that is. We still have no idea who Theophilus is. Some say he was the person financing Luke's work. I mean, after all, investigative journalism is expensive today. Imagine then undertaking such a task was expensive. And so you needed someone to underwrite that. So maybe he's the patron. Some people think that. Some say he's a high ranking government official in Rome. Someone who's gonna oversee Paul's trial there. 
And Luke is dedicating this volume as well as Acts, which you'll see there as well, as an apologetic for the Christian work that Paul is doing. Hey, here's why he's doing what he's doing. This is the history of it all. This is what makes it all make sense. Others say that he's a Gentile convert who's struggling in his faith and in need of reassurance. And others say, no, he's not really a person at all. It's a code name for the whole church. Theophilus is a code name for the whole church. I know you wanna know my answer, right? What do you think, Pastor Dan? Here's my answer. Does it really matter? Does it change anything? I mean, all the options are plausible, aren't they? Here's my answer. Although I think you deserve the title most excellent. Okay, I think you do. You probably wouldn't give that to yourself, right? Here's the thing. We're all Theophilus. All of us are Theophilus. It's been written to you. And it's been written for you and for you and for you and for you and for, as we say down south, all y'all are all yins, are all you guys. It's been written for all of us. I don't know. I've weighed the evidence. I can't make a decision. So I'll take that one. As with all scripture, it's been written down for our good, for our instruction, for our Certainty. God wrote this for you, that you would have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And here's my hope. My hope is that as we spend the next many months working our way through this book, I will pray and I want you to pray that the certainty of your faith and your love for Jesus and your love for his story would grow stronger and stronger and stronger and that you will be equipped not only to live for God, but to share this story with as many to whom God calls you to do so. Amen and amen.